It was a cold and stormy New York night in 1930, and college buddies Hoagie Carmichael and Stuart Gorell were hanging out at their friend Harry Shekelford's apartment in Jackson Heights. Perhaps they were talking about the good old days back at the University of Indiana, or maybe they were discussing how grim the weather was. But in my understanding, the scotch was flowing that night. At some point, Hoagie took a seat behind the piano and began to play. He was comfortable there, and he was quite good. After all, his mother had been a pianist, and he had been playing since he was very young. Stewart asked him if he had been working on anything new, and Hoagie started playing a song he had just finished writing. Stewart liked it and asked what it was about. Georgia, Hoagie said. Georgia? Stewart responded. Why Georgia? You've never been to Georgia. Hoagie explained that his friend, Frankie Trumbauer, had suggested it, had said you can't lose money writing a song about the South. Were there any lyrics? Stewart asked. Hoagie told him that Frankie had only offered up the first two words, Georgia, Georgia. Stewart grabbed a pen and told him to play it again. Georgia, Georgia, he wrote, the whole day through. He scratched his head and thought a bit, probably took another sip of scotch, and then he continued, just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. The two of them wrote through the night, and by morning they had a finished song. Once again, it was Stuart Gorell who suggested the title, Georgia On My Mind. Gorell became a banker and would rise to the position of vice president of Chase Bank in New York. He never wrote another song. Why would he? But the song he wrote, well, it went on to have quite a life of its own. Hoagie Carmichael recorded the song on September 15, 1930. Little did he know that just eight days later, in a small house in Albany, Georgia, a state he had never been to, a baby boy was born who was destined to play that song someday. That baby boy was named Ray Charles Robinson, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The song was released by Victor Records as part of Ralph Peers' Southern Music Company. Ralph Peers, you may remember from episode 8 of this podcast, was the man behind the infamous Bristol Sessions. Hoagie Carmichael wrote a lot of songs in his career, including Stardust, Skylark, Heart and Soul, and In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening. Author Ian Fleming believed his character James Bond looked a lot like Carmichael and said so in more than one book. But the song Georgia On My Mind would always be his most famous work. The day after Ray Charles turned one, Frankie Trumbauer recorded the song and it became a top 10 hit in 1931. From there, Georgia On My Mind, originally a jazz number, went in a number of different directions. It was recorded by the likes of Louis Armstrong, Mildred Bailey, Django Reinhardt, Billie Holiday, Dean Martin, and Bing Crosby. By 1960, it had been recorded at least 25 times. By this point, Ray Charles was 30 and was already referred to as the genius. He performed a lot of different songs, but George On My Mind wasn't one of them. The song was inside of him, though, 
and his driver often heard him humming it on the way to or from his shows. It was this driver who suggested Ray record the song. Ray told him he didn't even know the words, to which the driver pointed out he could learn them. That year, Ray Charles left Atlantic Records for ABC Paramount to gain more artistic freedom and a bigger cut of the royalties. His first album for his new label was titled The Genius Hits the Road, and there, sandwiched between Alabama Bound and Basin Street Blues, was Ray Charles' version of Georgia On My Mind. This version went all the way to number one on Billboard's Hot 100. Every recording of the song recorded before this version was covering Hoagie Carmichael. Every recording after was covering Ray Charles. There is no doubt of that. In the 1976 version, Richard Manuel recorded with the band in support of then-presidential candidate from Plains, Georgia, Jimmy Carter. This version was played when Carter was inaugurated in my hometown of Washington, D.C. It also seems pretty clear in the 1978 version by Willie Nelson, a version that went to number one on the charts and would win Willie a Grammy for Best Male Country Vocal Performance. In all honesty, it was probably the success of this version which got the attention of the Georgia General Assembly and prompted them to consider making Georgia On My Mind the state's official song. It was, however, Ray Charles who performed it for the General Assembly in 1979, and on April 24th of that year, the resolution was passed and Georgia On My Mind became the state's song of Georgia. The song has been performed and recorded countless times since then, and in 2005, Rolling Stone named Georgia On My Mind the 44th greatest song of all time. There was, though, probably no more heartfelt version ever performed than the one Willie Nelson sang in 2004 at the funeral of his old friend, Ray Charles. He sang Georgia, Oh, Georgia, no peace I find. Just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. This time around, I'm coming to you from Georgia, the Peach State. Over the last few weeks, I've been traveling in the north and west of the state. I came in from Chattanooga in the far northwest and, and made my way slowly through the North Georgia mountains. I hiked to beautiful waterfalls and spectacular gorges and enjoyed some time in the beautiful and quaint small mountain towns to be found there. From the mountains, I made my way down to Athens and then on to Atlanta. From the big city, I traveled down the west side of the state, through Columbus and Albany, before heading north again to Macon. During my time, I've met wonderful people and learned a lot about what makes Georgia tick. Georgia has a long and fascinating history, and it's been great to have some time to learn more about it. Georgia is also very well set up for tourism, even in smaller places that don't get a lot of visitors. 
In short, it's been a great start to my exploration of the Peach State, and I'm grateful to all the wonderful people I've met along the way. Our musical guest this week is the incredibly talented Atlanta-based singer-songwriter Wesley Cook. I know you're going to love his music as much as I do. To find out more about Wesley, visit his website, www.wesleycook.com. That's www.weslycook.com. You can find the songs from this podcast and all his music on iTunes and Spotify. To find out more about me and my slow journey around the United States, check out my website, www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles2GoTweet, and on Instagram at Miles2GoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. I've got some interesting stories ready for you this week, so let's get right to it. Grab a hot cocoa or some eggnog and pull up a seat by the fire and travel along as I take you to the mountains and small towns of West Georgia. They never ever wander far to see this land of mine But I'll keep mine My beautiful sunrise of Georgia She's always on I'll keep my beautiful sunrise of Georgia She's always on my mind If you know anything about U.S. coins, you'll probably know that on most, there is a single tiny letter which tells you where that particular coin was minted. A P, for example, tells you that coin was minted in Philadelphia. A D will tell you it was minted in Denver, unless that coin was produced between 1838 and the start of the Civil War. If the coin was produced during that time frame and is stamped with a D, it was minted in tiny Dahlonega, Georgia. During those 22 years, the Dahlonega Mint produced over $6 million worth of coins. All of them were pure gold. When Hernando de Soto was traipsing around the Deep South in 1540, he found several Indians wearing gold jewelry, but he himself found none. If you listened to episode 5 of this podcast, you will perhaps remember the story of Conrad Reed and the 17-pound gold nugget his family used as a doorstop for several years before realizing what it was and setting off America's first gold rush. Neither of those things was likely on the mind of Benjamin Parks as he walked through the woods in what was then Hall County on October 27, 1828. Probably looking for deer, Parks tripped over a rock and, as we all do, turned to inspect the offending stone. He noticed the sparkly yellow color and soon realized he had literally stumbled into a fortune. Although the story may be apocryphal, It's my favorite, and somebody found gold out there. This discovery was kept pretty quiet until August of 1829, when a story about it ran in the Georgia Journal, and from there spread to other newspapers around the state and the country. 
Soon, as always happens, the rush was on as thousands of 29ers made their way to North Georgia. By 1830, 4,000 miners were working the creeks, finding as much as 300 ounces a day. The problem was that most of the gold being found was on Cherokee land. The sudden influx of people onto the Cherokee Nation was called, even then, the Great Intrusion. There had already been tension between the Cherokee Nation and the state of Georgia, and this gold rush made things infinitely worse. In May of 1830, then-President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which called for the Indian tribes of the southeast to move west of the Mississippi River. You may remember from Episode 8 of this podcast how Tennessee Senator Davy Crockett opposed Jackson on this issue. The act was passed, though, and the Cherokee turned to the Supreme Court. In the 1831 case of the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, the court determined that the Cherokee were a, quote, domestic dependent nation, and therefore could not sue as a foreign nation. They did not judge the case on its merits. The following year, however, in the case of Worcester versus Georgia, the court ruled that the Cherokee were, in fact, a sovereign nation and not subject to the laws of Georgia. By that point, Jackson had had enough and refused to uphold the ruling. Cherokee land was distributed in a lottery, and gold continued to flow from the creeks. The U.S. government would sign a treaty with a minority group of Cherokee at New Dakota in 1835, which called for the voluntary removal of the tribe to the West. Many did leave voluntarily, but many more were rounded up and forced to go when they had not left by the winter of 1838. This removal and the forced winter march left thousands of Cherokee dead in an episode now remembered as the Trail of Tears. Have no doubt that this removal would have happened with or without gold in the area, but the gold hastened the process along. During this time, gold mining towns had grown up in the area, full of all of the usual mining town vices. The county seat of Licklog was renamed to the Cherokee word for yellow money, Dahlonega. The gold that was being mined had to travel all the way to the mint in Philadelphia to be processed, a long and potentially dangerous journey for a wagon full of gold. For this reason, a mint was ordered to be opened at Dahlonega, and it was finally up and running by 1838. By this time, some 15,000 miners were working the claims in the Georgia mountains. The mint would produce coins in one and five dollar denominations, and much rarer two and a half and three dollar denominations as well. The mint began producing coins the same year the Cherokee were forcibly removed from their ancestral lands, and it was sadly right about then that the surface gold started to play out. As mining efforts became deeper and more expensive, fewer people were involved in its pursuit. The Georgia Gold Rush was ending. In 1849, when news of the discovery of gold in California reached Dahlonega, many miners packed up and headed west. Dr. Matthew Stevenson, who was the assayer at the local mint, called a meeting at the town square. He chastised the men for wanting to go west. Pointing at Findlay Ridge, just south of town, he firmly stated, quote, Why go to California? 
In that ridge lies more gold than man ever dreamt of. There's millions in it, end quote. It's often been said that this quote was later passed on to Mark Twain, who added his signature seasoning to the words and came out with it as, There's gold in them thar hills. Regardless, many of the 29ers became 49ers and headed west. Gold mining continued in North Georgia to varying degrees from that time until today. The Dahlonega Mint would close soon after the Civil War began and never reopen. The building became a part of North Georgia College until it burned down in 1878. A new building for the college went up on the Mint's foundation and is now named Price Memorial Hall after the founder of the college. The dome of this building is plated with 13 ounces of local gold. When Georgia's state capitol dome in Atlanta was renovated in 1958, a movement started in the old gold region Locals donated old jewelry and coins they had lying around, and the tin dome was replaced with 43 ounces of pure Georgia gold. I hope when people see this beautiful gold leaf dome high atop the Capitol building in Atlanta, that it reminds them of the Cherokee trudging down a trail of golden tears, and of a time when D stood for Dahlonega. Like gold to me, but my Persephone, I can see that you don't believe when I say to you, but my Persephone, it is true that the better half of me will die with John Henry Holliday was born in Griffin, Georgia on August 14, 1851. He was born with a cleft palate, and his mother spent countless hours when he was growing up, trying to help him correct his speech. As an adult, John Henry was often complimented for his excellent diction and Southern mannerisms, a lasting tribute to the hours he and his mother spent on both. John Henry's father was a druggist by trade, but served in the Mexican-American War and as a Confederate officer in the Civil War. John Henry and his family moved to Valdosta, Georgia in 1864, a town his father would later serve as their mayor. In 1866, when John Henry was just 15, his mother died of tuberculosis. Devastated, the young man threw himself into his studies, and when he was 19, he moved to Philadelphia to study dentistry. After receiving his degree, John Henry moved to St. Louis, where he took a job as a dental assistant. He then moved closer to home, to Atlanta, where he joined the dental practice of a friend of his father's. His life may have continued along this path of quietly practicing dentistry had he not been diagnosed with tuberculosis himself. Hoping that the warmer and drier climate of Texas might provide him some relief, John Henry moved to Dallas, a town then on America's western frontier. He opened his own dental practice there, but his tuberculosis left him prone to coughing fits, something which didn't match up well with his profession. 
Finding his practice dying, he turned to gambling and found he was good enough at it to supplement his income. During his time in Dallas, John Henry also became skilled with a gun, which would serve him well through the rest of his life. When John Henry was brought up on illegal gambling charges in 1875, he left the state and moved to Denver, where he found work dealing cards at the Theater Comique. Following the discovery of gold in the Black Hills, John Henry moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and then on to Deadwood, South Dakota. He moved several more times over the next few years, eventually settling in Fort Griffin, Texas. It was there that he met his future partner, Mary Catherine Harani, a dancing girl and sometimes prostitute, more commonly known as Big Nose Kate. Kate was an educated woman, but preferred the independence she could enjoy working as a prostitute. It was also in Fort Griffin that he first met Wyatt Earp, who would always refer to his friend, dentist John Henry Holliday, simply as Doc. Doc Holliday was once again arrested for illegal gambling in 1878. Soon thereafter, Kate created a distraction outside the building where he was being held, and the two escaped and headed to Dodge City, Kansas, to join their new friend Wyatt Earp, who was living there at the time. One night in Dodge, Earp got into a confrontation with several men at the Long Branch Saloon. Outnumbered, he may have met his maker that day, had Doc, who had been playing cards in the back room, not come to his aid. Doc put a gun to one of the men's heads and allowed Earp to escape and regroup. From that day on, the two were friends. When the railroad extended west to Santa Fe, Doc and Big Nose Kate moved to Las Vegas, New Mexico along its route and opened a saloon. On October 18, 1879, Wyatt Earp rode through Las Vegas with his brother James and their wives. They told Doc they were on their way to Prescott, Arizona to collect their other brother, Virgil, and then they were headed to the silver boom town of Tombstone. Eleven months later, Doc and Kate would join them there. The Earps moved to Tombstone to help keep the peace in the dangerous and deadly mining community. Virgil became a deputy U.S. Marshal and the town's chief of police. Their main source of trouble in Tombstone was a loosely connected group of outlaws and rustlers known collectively as the Cowboys. The Cowboys and the Earps went back and forth, exchanging threats and occasional gunshots. It all came to a head on October 26, 1881, when Cowboys Ike and Billy Clanton, Frank and Tom McLaurie, and Billy Claiborne rode into town looking for a fight. They had refused to turn in their guns upon entering town, so the Earps set off to find them, with Doc Holliday along for backup. The small posse found the Cowboys in a small alley off of Fremont Street near, but not actually in, the OK Corral. Words were exchanged, guns were drawn, and over 30 shots were fired in the span of 30 seconds. 30 seconds, which history remembers as the shootout at the OK Corral. When the smoke cleared, the McClory brothers and Billy Clanton lay dead. Doc Holliday and Virgil and Morgan Earp were all wounded, but survived. That wasn't the end of the trouble in Tombstone, though. In fact, it was only the beginning. Two months and two days later, 
Virgil Earp was on his way from the Oriental Saloon to the Crystal Palace when he was ambushed and took two shotgun blasts to his left side. He would live, but never fully recover from his injuries. Three months after that, Morgan Earp was shooting a game of pool at the Campbell and Hatch Billiard Parlor. Bullets came through one of the windows from the alley, and Morgan was mortally wounded. Wyatt set out to seek revenge for his brothers, with his trusted friend Doc Holliday by his side. The next few months were violent and deadly ones in Arizona. With warrants out for his arrest for his participation in these vendetta rides, Doc left Arizona for good, first to New Mexico, and then on to Colorado. Trouble followed him to Colorado, and in addition, his health took a noticeable turn for the worse. In May of 1887, seeking relief from his tuberculosis, Doc arrived in Glenwood Springs. His health continued to decline, and by October, he was bedbound. On November 8, 1887, Doc woke clear-headed for the first time in weeks. He asked for a shot of whiskey, which he drank with great enjoyment. He stared down at his bare feet, muttered the words, that's funny, and died. John Henry Doc Holliday had always assumed he would die with his boots on. He was 36. Of his good friend Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp was once quoted as saying, I found him a loyal friend and good company. He was a dentist whom necessity had made a gambler, a gentleman whom disease had made a vagabond, a philosopher whom life had made a caustic wit, a long, lean, blonde fellow, nearly dead with consumption, and at the same time the most skillful gambler and nerviest, speediest, deadliest man with a six-gun I ever knew. How can I be what you want me to be when there's nothing left here for me? But a man in the rain screaming, crying in pain saying, my God, we've gone insane. Killed my only angel oh, with his hand on the gun, and he took my Stone Mountain has been around for a very long time. The granite which it is composed of is considered to be some of the best in the country. Stone Mountain granite was used in the building of Fort Knox, the Panama Canal and the steps of the east wing of the United States Capitol in my hometown of Washington, D.C. It was, in fact, the quality of Stone Mountain granite which caused the Venable Brothers to buy it in the first place. The family bought Stone Mountain in its entirety in 1887 and ran the quarrying operations with great success. In 1914, 27 years after they bought the mountain, they were approached by a woman named Caroline Helen Plain. Plain was a charter member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy and had lost her husband during the Civil War at the Battle of Antietam in Sharpsburg, Maryland. She had recently presented an idea to both the Atlanta and Georgia chapters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy to carve a statue of General Robert E. Lee into Stone Mountain. 
McLean negotiated a land deed with the Venable family, and then brought in Gutsum Borglum, who later carved Mount Rushmore, to draw up a proposal. Borglum proposed a 1,200-foot-long carving of not only Lee, but also Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis, with hundreds of Confederate soldiers in the background. He said he could finish it in eight years at a cost of $2 million. With the popularity of the recently released film, Birth of a Nation, Plain wondered if the monument might include a carving of the Ku Klux Klan, whom she believed had saved the South from, quote, Negro domination and carpetbag rule, end quote. The Klan had been mostly extinguished in the 1870s, but Birth of a Nation sparked an interest in a refounding of the organization, with new symbolism, like cross burnings. Cross burning had been used with great dramatic effect in the movie, but had not been a part of Klan history to that point. It was November 25, 1915, when former Methodist minister William Simmons led a dozen men, including landowner Sam Venable, to the top of Stone Mountain. They took an oath, donned their hoods, burned a cross, and started the second incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan, right there in central Georgia. Carving of Stone Mountain began that year, but World War I put it on hold. By 1925, only Lee's head was complete, and Borglum left the project in frustration. Another stone carver, Augustus Lukeman, was brought in to continue the project. The original land deed expired in 1928, and by then, the Venable family was tired of the project. They took their land back, and the carving on Stone Mountain went untouched for 36 years. Then, in 1955, a man named Marvin Griffin won the Georgia governorship and began speaking out in support of white supremacy. In response to the 1954 Brown v. the Board of Education ruling, he said, quote, So long as Marvin Griffin is your governor, there will be no mixing of the races in the classrooms of our schools. End quote. During his tenure, Georgia's state flag was changed to include a Confederate battle flag in its design. And in 1958, using taxpayer funds, the state of Georgia bought Stone Mountain in its entirety. In 1964, carving resumed on Stone Mountain under the direction of Walter Hancock. It was not by accident that the park officially opened on April 14, 1965, marking the 100th anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The carving was completed in 1972. The carving on Stone Mountain is quite an incredible work of art. Covering three acres of rock, it is the largest base relief sculpture in the world. It's Georgia's most visited site, hosting over four million visitors a year, and it's also the largest Confederate memorial in the country. Unlike many other Confederate memorials, though, this carving was begun while ash was still drifting down its face from a cross burned in the refounding of the Ku Klux Klan. The project restarted as African Americans were fighting for basic civil rights and was opened to mark the assassination of an American president. Completed just a few years before I was born, and over a hundred years after the Civil War ended, in an entirely different era, is it any wonder that this monument in particular is so controversial? 
Every step in the creation of the carving at Stone Mountain is connected to racism, ignorance, and hate. This is a shame because the Civil War was not fought about racism, ignorance, or hate. Likewise, symbols of the Confederacy were not symbols of racism, ignorance, or hate until they were appropriated by groups like the Ku Klux Klan, the Red Shirts, and those opposed to civil rights. Much like the Nazis appropriated the swastika and forever changed the way we look at it, these groups made Confederate symbols symbols of hate when they made them their own. If those who are fighting to preserve Confederate monuments would condemn these groups and what they stand for, then we would be having a very different conversation right now. It is these groups and their deplorable, heinous, and unforgivable actions which are the real blight on the South. It is these groups which tarnish the memory of the Confederate war dead. Southern culture is far-reaching and does not need to be associated with racism, ignorance, or hate. But until those who know the difference start condemning the actions of those who don't, I'm afraid it forever will be. Contrary to popular belief, Jackie Robinson was not the first black player to play professional baseball. Moses Fleetwood Walker and his brother Weldy had played for the Toledo Blue Stockings way back in 1884. And of course, we must remember the Negro League teams, which were absolutely professional baseball teams. But these facts don't change the importance of what happened on April 15, 1947, when Jackie Robinson jogged out to first base at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. No, he wasn't the first, but he paved the way for all who followed him, and he did it with courage and grace. His story begins on January 31, 1919, when Jack Roosevelt Robinson was born to sharecropper parents in tiny Cairo, Georgia. He was the youngest of five, and times were tough in southwest Georgia, especially if you were black. It got infinitely harder when his father, Jerry, walked out on them before Jackie was even a year old. Realizing there was no future for them in Cairo, Mally packed up her five children and got on a train to California. They settled in Pasadena, where the Robinson children would grow up. There was definitely an athletic streak in the Robinson family, as Jackie's older brother, Mac, would win a silver medal in track in the 1936 Olympics, finishing second only to the legendary Jesse Owens. Jackie attended John Muir High School, where he lettered in football, basketball, baseball, and track. He was also, apparently, pretty good at tennis. After high school, Jackie went to Pasadena Junior College, and then on to UCLA 
where he once again lettered in four sports. It was there that he met a girl named Rachel, who later became his wife. Jackie Robinson left UCLA just a few credits shy of graduation and went to work as an assistant athletic director for the National Youth Administration. In 1941, he moved to Honolulu to play football for the semi-pro Honolulu Bears. He went on to play for the Los Angeles Bulldogs in the Pacific Coast Football League. His football days ended in 1942, when he was drafted into the Army. He went for basic training at Fort Riley in Kansas, and because of his college experience, applied for officer candidate school. In January of 1943, Jackie Robinson was commissioned as a second lieutenant and went to Fort Hood, where he joined the 761st Black Panthers Tank Battalion. In 1944, Jackie Robinson boarded a bus on base and was told to move to the back. He refused, stating he was a United States Army officer. The driver called the military police, who removed Jackie from the bus and arrested him. He was charged with two counts of insubordination and court-martial. He was eventually acquitted on both counts. After the case, he was transferred to Camp Breckenridge, Kentucky, where he coached Army athletics until he was honorably discharged in November of 1944. While at Breckenridge, he had met a former player from the Negro League's Kansas City Monarchs, who encouraged him to try out for the team. Jackie played 47 games for the Monarchs in 1945, batting 387 with five home runs and 13 stolen bases. The previous year, baseball's longtime commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, had passed away. You may remember Landis as the commissioner who banned Shoeless Joe Jackson for life from episode 7 of this podcast. By all accounts, Landis had been opposed to integration, but his replacement, Kentucky and Happy Chandler didn't share that opinion. He believed that if men of different races could fight together in the war, they could probably play baseball together back at home. It was in this environment that Portsmouth, Ohio native Branch Rickey, general manager and part owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, set up a meeting with Jackie Robinson. Rickey knew there was an amazing amount of talent in the Negro Leagues and wanted to tap into it. There was no official ban on black players in Major League Baseball, just an unspoken agreement. Ricky could technically hire anyone he wanted, but he knew that whoever he chose would be put under a microscope. Robinson was probably not the best player in the Negro Leagues at the time, but Ricky felt he had the right background and personality. Jackie Robinson didn't drink or smoke, was a devout Methodist married to his college sweetheart, was college-educated, and an officer in the military. And he had played on racially mixed teams before. In addition, he was well-spoken, personable, and a good-looking young man. All of these things convinced Ricky he was the right man for the job. Ricky had a long conversation with Robinson about the abuse both men knew he would face. He warned Jackie that there would be huge opposition to him playing, both inside and outside the game. He also made the point that the future of black players in Major League Baseball relied on the actions of whoever came first. He wanted Jackie to promise he wouldn't fight back, and he would instead turn the other cheek. Jackie agreed and signed on to play for the Montreal Royals, the Dodgers' farm club, 
He arrived in Florida for spring training in 1946 and was definitely not welcomed with open arms. He was not allowed to stay at the team hotel and instead had to live with a local black family. Other teams refused to play if Jackie was in the lineup and several games were canceled. Even members of his own team weren't happy he was there and some threatened to quit. For his part, Jackie kept his mouth shut and kept playing the game. It must have been a lonely time for Jackie Robinson, despite being as close to where he had been born as he had ever been since he was a baby. Despite these many challenges, on April 18, 1946, Jackie Robinson and the Montreal Royals broke the minor league color barrier in a game against the Jersey City Giants at Roosevelt Stadium in New Jersey. In my head, and only in my head, I like to think Jackie pretended the stadium was named after him, since his middle name was also Roosevelt. Despite grounding out in his first at bat, Robinson went four for five that day, including a three-run home run in the third. Whatever proof was needed, Jackie Robinson proved himself that season. He led the league batting 349 and was named the league's most valuable player. Can you imagine? The other main concern with having black players was also dispelled that year. Ticket sales did not drop off. In fact, more than a million people turned out to watch Robinson and the Royals play that season, an all-time high for the team. Interestingly, after the season, Jackie went home to L.A. and played pro basketball for the Los Angeles Red Devils. As the spring of 1947 began, there was no doubt a lot of talk about calling Jackie up to the Dodgers. Six days before the season started, he got the call. Jackie Robinson was officially a Brooklyn Dodger. Several of his teammates were not happy with the decision and made their feelings known. Dodgers manager, Leo DeRocher, made his position quite clear to the team that the decision had been made. He told them, quote, I do not care if the guy is yellow or black or if he has stripes like a fucking zebra. I'm the manager of this team, and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich, and if any of you cannot use the money, I will see that you are all traded, end quote. Other teams threatened to strike, to which Commissioner Chandler responded, quote, I do not care if half the league strikes. Those who do it will encounter quick retribution. All will be suspended, and I don't care if it wrecks the National League for five years. This is the United States of America, and one citizen has as much right to play as another, end quote. Another great quote comes from Robinson's fellow Dodger, Pee Wee Reese, who said, You can hate a man for many reasons. Color is not one of them. And so it was that on April 15, 1947, Jack Roosevelt Robinson jogged out to first base at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. The umpire called for the teams to play ball, and Major League Baseball's color barrier was broken for the first time since 1889 when Fleet Walker hung up his cleats. 26,623 people came to the game that day. Some 14,000 of them were black. Though Robinson went hitless in the game, he did have a walk and scored a run, and I can only imagine the joy those black fans felt as he crossed home plate. The Dodgers won that day 5-3. The challenges were not over for Jackie Robinson, though. 
as he was taunted, yelled at, and called names almost everywhere he went. Other players also went after him physically, and he took more than a few spikes to the leg. Jackie played 151 games that season and batted 297 with 175 hits. He led the league in sacrifice hits and stolen bases and was named Major League Baseball's Rookie of the Year. In 1948, Robinson moved to his preferred position at second base and batted 296. Other black players had been signed, so some of the tension he faced lifted, but it certainly didn't disappear. The following year, Jackie Robinson batted 342, was named the National League's MVP and the starting second baseman in the 1949 All-Star Game. Because he was 28 when he broke the color barrier in 1947, Jackie only played 10 seasons in Major League Baseball, all for the Dodgers. He played in six World Series and six All-Star Games, and fittingly was the first black player inducted into the Pro Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962. He was a good hitter, an excellent fielder, and an amazing base runner. My favorite Jackie Robinson statistic is that he stole home 19 times in his career. His manager, Leo DeRocher, always a colorful wordsmith, if you couldn't tell from his earlier quote, said of Jackie Robinson, quote, you want a guy that comes to play. This guy didn't just come to play. He come to beat you. He come to stuff the goddamn bat right up your ass, end quote. Jackie retired from baseball in 1957. He would go on to work as a commentator and analyst, served on the board of the NAACP, and became vice president for personnel at Chockfull and Nuts. He was also active in politics throughout his later life. He was awarded the NAACP's Spring Arn Medal and would posthumously receive the Congressional Gold Medal and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. On June 4, 1972, the Dodgers retired Robinson's number, and just four months later, he passed away at the age of 53. In 1997, recognizing both his bravery and his merits as a player, Major League Baseball retired Jackie Robinson's number across the entire league. The first time that had happened in any sport. One can only imagine what went through Jackie Robinson's head when he was first approached about breaking baseball's color barrier. He would later say, though, life is not a spectator sport. If you're going to spend your whole life in the grandstand just watching what goes on, in my opinion, you're wasting your life. He may not have been the first, but his actions both on and off the field ensured that he also wasn't the last. Jackie Robinson changed the face of Major League Baseball forever. That's it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, be sure you tell your friends. And if you have a minute to spare to rate and review the show, I'd really appreciate it. From here, I'm headed east to Augusta, 
on to Savannah and down the coast. So next time I'll be coming to you from East Georgia. To follow along, see photos of my journey, or just to get in touch, please visit my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet, and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep. All using the number two for me and you. How great was the music this week? I told you you'd like it. Many thanks to the great Wesley Cook for being my musical guest this week. You can find his albums on iTunes and Spotify. To learn more about Wesley, his upcoming shows, or just to get in touch with him, drop by his website, www.wesleycook.com, www.wesleycook.com. For background music and sound effects, thanks as always to Kevin McLeod over at IncomTechMusic.com and to the great folks at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. I'm headed towards the coast, y'all, so it's time for me to sign off. Until next time, then, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.